Welcome to Piedmont Arts. I'm Rachel Stewart. The Rock Hill Symphony Orchestra was established in 2017. It's one of the younger arts organizations in our region. But it is a fully professional orchestra made up of some of the best players throughout the area. And it kicks off its new season on September 10th with a concert called A Musical Tapestry of Folk and Classical Traditions. The orchestra will be joined by harpist Abigail Kent for Glier's Concerto for Harp in E-flat, and Kellen Gray will be the guest conductor. He's a Rock Hill native who currently serves as assistant conductor of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and associate conductor of the Charleston Symphony, and he was formerly assistant conductor at the Chicago Sinfonietta. And I'm very glad to uh, welcome him to Piedmont Arts today to talk about the concert and and also a little bit about yourself, Kellen. Uh, because you're from this area, I think it would be interesting for folks to hear a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, as a conductor and all the way in Scotland at this point. So, Sure, sure. And thank you again for having me. Um, yeah, as you said, I'm a Rock Hill native. Some of my earliest memories are sort of music happenings in the Rock Hill area. Everything from sort of Sunday mornings at uh, Liberty Hill Missionary Baptist Church down in Catawba, where my family attended, or um, I've seen my dad in a production of Ain't Misbehaving at Winthrop University. So music was kind of just always sort of there. Like most of the public school students in the Rock Hill District, at least at the time, um, in the sixth grade, they introduced us to all the sort of areas of music. There was chorus, uh, strings, and band, and it happened to be something I felt like I was pretty good at at the time. As that's such an identity-forming age, uh, finding something you're good at and finding a sort of community where you feel generally accepted. It just really feels like home. It feels like something to sort of attach yourself to. So I did. And uh, I was lucky enough to uh, stick with the violin all the way up until uh, about my senior year of high school. And my violin teacher at the time, uh, who is living in Charlotte, or actually in Harrisburg on the other side of Charlotte, uh, happened to know uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Pat Kobos, who basically accepted me as a student at Columbus State University, where I did my undergrad in violin. And um, some years later, went to do a master's in conducting at Valdosta State University, and then an artist diploma um, back at Columbus State University again. And that was simultaneous to my time as assistant conductor at Chicago Symphonietta, and then eventually a job at the Charleston Symphony, and now here at both the Charleston Symphony and the uh, RSNO. I wonder what if you could say a little bit about what uh, it means to Rock Hill and to you, I imagine, to have a symphony now and for you to be able to come back and, and conduct there. Yeah, it, it's, I think it's a, it's a shows a real evolution. I mean, I've been away from Rock Hill for a while, but it really shows, I guess, how the city's grown. I mean, obviously the population and the happenings in the Rock Hill area have grown since my time leaving there. I think 20, 2003 is when I left or so, so almost 20 years ago. My teachers were the ones that I actually had in the public school. So, you know, big salute to the public school teachers out there that are mentoring students. And I was only lucky enough that in my junior year, um, a, a really lovely violinist by the name of Jacob Dakin, had he not moved to town, I literally would not be where I am. That, that wasn't there. So there were no private teachers for instruments and there was no symphony. And in fact, the closest place would have been Charlotte to go to the Charlotte Youth Orchestra, which I remember sort of dying and aspiring to want to audition for, but it was just too far to get to and, and too often. And, and so I think it, it says a lot that, you know, that Rock Hill has its own sort of ecosystem of, of a musical habitat now. I watched a video uh, interview with you um, from the, I guess, the Galeyard Center. You mentioned that um, when you went to the Chicago Sinfonietta as a project inclusion uh, Freeman Conducting Fellow, you were asked, what has your journey been like as a black conductor? 
and you were like, I hadn't really thought about that. But it sounds to me like you have since thought about that. And, you know, you're referring to these teachers that kind of paved the way or helped uh, break some ground. Uh, just wonder if you could reflect on that. And... Sure, sure. When, you know, when I think about the whole survey of time from, you know, being asked that question to, oh, really, just the first time I had to sort of face that, I guess, uh, was at Chicago's in Veneta when we were doing an exercise in, in personal narrative and identity and you know, having to come to terms with being not just a conductor, but a black conductor. When I think about it, it was just so brand new to me. Um, you know, I obviously have been nothing but black all my life and uh, I've been only a conductor for a couple of years and I was not working in, in professionally in the, in the sort of musical ecosystem yet. I was only, I just finished doing my master's and, um, you know, I just hadn't really experienced physically the barriers at the time that most black conductors have to face both now and in the past. And so being in school, I was kind of shielded from a lot of that. And, you know, obviously it's sort of being my normality. I didn't really know how to respond to it. But since that time, I've definitely had to face a lot of those realities. You know, it's 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 really hard to be a conductor. I mean, in, just in general, there's so many, so many rigors of the profession that are just difficult to deal with. But they're all magnified when you're basically coming from a culture that's considered at least the antithesis of what is the norm in classical music. So I think when, when I guess you and your listeners might think about what a conductor is, the first thing that probably comes to your mind is a, a tall white gentleman with gray hair, probably long gray hair, <laughs> long baton. He probably has a very European distinct accent. And I look like none of those things. And so often, even today, when I like sort of uh, am moving about wherever I am in the world, if someone asks me what I do for a living, and I happen to say musician, they immediately just guess jazz musician. Or if I tell them I'm a conductor, they generally they don't believe me and have to sort of be uh, credential myself, I guess. But yeah, some of those things are just the assumption that I, I'm not necessarily what I am or the assumption that, and frankly, sometimes the assumption that I may not be good at what I do because I don't look like uh, what they're used to seeing. And then also now that we're sort of in a time period where I, I'm glad we're moving forward, but orchestras are sort of stumbling over themselves to program black composers, which I'm really happy that we're even doing that now. Unfortunately, we often get pigeonholed as we only do black composers. And so you find yourself struggling to you know, be within the industry and now struggling and trying to get out of being pigeonholed to only doing this one subset of what our repertoire really is, when obviously you're trained to do everything that's there. And don't get me wrong, I, I consider one of the principal tenets of my career as a champion black composers, but I still think it's, it's sort of a level of otherism that we're now placed in and considering that that's the only thing that we can do. Um, and so now I'm, I'm really lucky that I'm getting the opportunities to, I guess, show that I'm a much more diversified musician than that as far as my skill set. But those are just some of the assumptions, I think, that come along with this career with being in the skin that I happen to be in. That's interesting, mm -hmm. the, that notion of um, getting pigeonholed. I guess sort of moving to a, a place that's a little more fair and equitable goes through some phases, and that sounds like that's a phase that probably a lot of uh, black conductors are, are in, maybe even women conductors. I don't know. Maybe not as much. but Yeah, it's, I think it's a spectrum. It's a growth that the industry and that the world is growing through, so I'm glad we're moving forward, but it's only recently occurred to me that I'm now sort of one of those people in this generation that, you know, we're doing things that we have not done previously. Um, an example, and it's not a plug, I promise, uh, but coming up in late October, no, early October, late October, the RSNO and I are releasing an album of uh, William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony and um, William Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony. And somehow in 2022, 
I will actually be the first black conductor to ever record that with a, well, period. Um, and then still somehow the first black conductor to record the William Grant Stills Symphony with a major orchestra. Um, anywhere? So we've, we've, anywhere, yeah, with a, with a major orchestra anywhere and then uh, recording the Dawson Symphony, period. There are a few recordings out there, but somehow we've not yet gotten the opportunity to do that. And and uh, which I'm really happy to do again. Like I, I love championing these two composers particularly, um, but just the fact that that has not happened yet is still just shocking to me uh, that these works can be written uh, nearly a hundred years ago and that this is just now happening. Well, yeah, um, we have noticed here, uh, just being a classical station, that there is more of a concerted effort, I think, a, in a lot of places to start recording some of this music that has like you said, been there, you know, for at least a hundred years, but uh, just like you said, hasn't hasn't had a, an outlet or a champion. So that's all very interesting. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the program that uh, you'll be conducting uh, when you're in Rock Hill. To me, it looks like a fairly diverse program. Um, you do have music by a black composer on there. But then there's the glare, and then there's something that none of us have ever heard in this country. So can you tell us a little bit about it? So yeah, as you said, it's a quite a diverse program. There's stuff from all over the place, and uh, but there's sort of all this um, this tie that connects everything. And for me, it's folk music that comes to it, starting with probably the most substantial work, at least in length, uh, on the program, the Dvorak Symphony. I think we all sort of know Antonin Dvorak as... Uh, the Czech composer who really champions a sort of Czechness um, in his works, uh, you know, really basing a lot of his music off of uh, the Czech folk music. And this symphony is really sort of the start of it, uh, the Eighth Symphony. His seventh is considered his most Brahmsian by many people, and obviously the ones before that are, um, are sort of of the same ilk. And the Eighth is sort of where he put his flag down and really put his foot uh, down and said, I'm, I am a Czech musician and this is the language I want to write in. So. When you hear the music, you actually hear these sort of uh, episodes back and forth between sort of illustrations of Austro-Germanic culture and Czech culture. A great example is the third movement, uh, which often the inner movements of symphonies, we think is sort of the fluffy stuff. Um, but this one is, it's very distinctly in um, Viennese waltz from the beginning, and then immediately in its variations contrasted by the sort of rustic, much more rounded, uh, a little more rough and tumble and bombastic Czech folk dances. Um, and the same thing happens in sort of all the movements there. And I think you you get this sort of reference to what we consider to be uh, genteel and uh, refined Austro-Germanic culture, and then what was considered at the time a bit more rustic Czech culture. But really, that's the language and the, the aesthetic that he calls home, and, and really magnifying it to the same level that was considered the norm uh, for Austro-Germanic culture. Um, so folk music, obviously there. So the, the Glier Concerto, Harp Concerto, or Concerto for Harp, obviously based also also on Russian folk music. It reminds me a lot of early Tchaikovsky symphonies when Tchaikovsky was writing in his sort of, at least in the symphonies, most sort of uh, Russian aesthetic. You know, and, and we're really lucky to have Abigail Kent uh, as the harpist. She's one of the world's best harpists. She recently uh, placed third in the Korea International Harp Competition. And I'm lucky enough to call her my life partner as well. So it's really nice that we get to uh, tag team this concert together. And then the pieces that probably we have not heard of uh, as much uh, that don't seem as folk music-y, one is uh, Jesse Montgomery, whom I think you referenced as probably um, what's immediately known as the African-American composer here. She's one of the, the really outstanding and, um, how do I say this, 
really in composers right now. Um, I'm lucky enough to call her an associate and getting to work with her when uh, we did a lot of her works at Chicago Sinfonietta. And she's a uh, uh, born New Yorker, born and raised on the Lower East Side and in her particular neighborhood is very much an African diasporic uh, neighborhood and also a Latinx uh, diasporic uh, neighborhood. And so always hearing these sort of contrast and similarities between these sort of uh, Latin and black cultures and the music that's always happening there. And so folk music is kind of always kind of a common element that's baked into her music. And in this particular piece, Strum, it's obviously the striking of strings, which is what we uh, would be preceding the harp uh, concerto that we have there. And then a piece making its sort of US debut, uh, Michael Rook's The Isles Are Full of Noise. Um, obviously the literary reference, but Michael Rook is also Afro-Scottish composer. Uh, who I happened to just uh, meet here a little earlier, not this season, sorry, meet here last season uh, in Scotland. We did the premiere, the European premiere of the work or the world premiere of the work. And it's one of these pieces that just got my blood rushing right away as soon as I heard it. I told him I was gonna dive at the first opportunity I'd have to program it. And then obviously hearing his music reminds me of folk music in a slightly different way. And for me, his a lot of his music is actually based off of popular music. Uh, and so literally when you hear the last few moments of the piece, which the whole thing is very exciting, he said the thought that went through his head sort of basically in the last few bars was the Avengers assemble. Um, <laughs> so I'll just <laughs> let the audience sort of hear what that means when they sort of get there. So the 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 type of um, folk music that he references, you're saying it's not a real direct reference? It's not a real direct reference. So I don't think you'll hear necessarily specific dances, not traditional songs. But you hear things that are based off of what we would, I guess, within this modern times, consider folk music. And for me, that's references to anything that's sort of uh, jazz related or pre-jazz dance form. So swing, blues, name name anything else, cakewalks, um, maybe even some of the uh, early 20th century uh, Afro-Cuban things. But yeah, so anything basically based on sort of swing era jazz and forward. So I consider all basically popular music. Well, that'll be an interesting piece for sure, it sounds like. And I guess, you know, I should remind people that the title of the concert is A Musical Tapestry of Folk and Classical Traditions. So one last question. I know that you are, are doing a lot of work uh, in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion in classical music. And I wonder if you could give us a prognosis about, you know, where things are and where things might be headed in classical music. I feel like there's been quite an awakening really since 2020. It was starting to happen before that, but really since 2020. Well, obviously things are better than they ever have been. I think that's always kind of the progression, at least we hope. Um, and as you said, there's been this sort of awakening and, and, you know, I'm not sure the word awaken is what I would use. I think, you know, we've all known, thinking about, I know this is the way you meant it, but thinking about awakening sort of lets people off the hook to say that they didn't know that there were issues. Um, where I think we, we always knew there were issues and we always knew what they were. And frankly, that classical music has always been dictated by not just a small sliver of the population and that I think sort of the, the NEA research basically says our classical music listeners that go to concerts are usually between the ages of uh, 49 and 70, make over $100,000 a year, predominantly white and predominantly male. Those are what our audiences look like basically. And we can't pretend that those, uh, that basically our audiences look like that as not a product of what our society is basically. And that programming and decisions get made at symphonies based on who donates the most money. Um, and those are some of those societal issues that we that we face and that we basically have to say, if we are going to be a symphony for the city that we are named after, we should probably represent 
all of that city and not just the people of that particular subset. And I think that has to do with the people that we have on stage. It has to do with the music that we choose. It has to do with uh, the choices we make when it comes to community engagement and which communities are we engaging. And so I guess to go back to that term, you know, awakening versus choices, we all knew what we were doing and what the industry was doing. But I think we reached a point in 2020 that where we realized it's no longer going to be tolerated. And that I think that came from within the industry and outside the industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a really tragic turn uh, or really tragic reasons for this sort of um, uh, recognition that change needed to happen, that it had to come off the the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And then, you know, what we called in classical music Blackout Tuesday, where we all sort of did a digital protest. But I'm glad we're here and we are moving forward. We are having conversations. I think we have a long way to go to basically make sure that we break the cycles of basically being very uh, internally exclusive organizations, meaning that things don't really change um, on the performance level and on stage and in the programming and in the community engagement until the staffs change, until the boards change, you know, your audiences look like what your board looks like. Um, and so whenever we have truly diverse boards that, are, that make uh, up a diverse set of our communities and not just based on who wants to donate the most money, um, that's when I think we'll have some great changes. And the same thing with the staffs that we hire so that people that look like me and more women and more people from all different communities are actually making the programming decisions and the engagement decisions. That's when I think we'll have great change. And there are programs and initiatives industry-wide and respective of orchestras that are headed in that way. I'm proud that the Charleston Symphony, we're making some strides there to help do that. But I think when we are hopefully a couple generations down the road, our organizations will look differently, both on the face of the organization and I guess the performative elements, but also in sort of the nature of what we do. And I'll be really excited to see the day when orchestras truly feel like they serve their communities and not just put on concerts that their communities should come see. And that's what I hope the change will be. I think we'll become more local because um, we have to be. Um, as much as I love the biggest orchestras, like, I mean, I happen to be one at RSNO, is one of the biggest orchestras in the UK. I don't think there'll be any new orchestras of that size or no new Chicago symphonies, um, no new New York Phils, but there will be new Rock Hill symphonies, mm-hmm. orchestras that are uh, in smaller communities because they, frankly, are just much more flexible and mobile organizations. And I think those are the ones that really where the change will happen, where we actually, again, can start serving our communities and figuring out how to truly connect to every part of the community and not just being a, a static figure to come come be watched and heard. I think that's an excellent point. And um, I think the Rock Hill Symphony Orchestra is a great example of how a community is embracing the music. And, um, and you're right. I, I think that's also... Um, the way that classical music is going to make it. As the, I guess as the makeup of our country changes, our, the makeup of our orchestras and nonprofits will have to change also, I think. Yes, yep. Well, Kellen Gray, I want to thank you so much for a great conversation today and for being our guest on Piedmont Arts. Um, and we look forward to having you come home to Rock Hill uh, very soon. Well, thank you. It's so good to chat with you and really excited to get back there myself. All right. Kellen Gray is going to be the guest conductor for the Rock Hill Symphony Orchestra's opening concert on September 10th. Uh, It's a concert called A Musical Tapestry of Folk and Classical Traditions. He's been speaking to us from Scotland, where he's the assistant conductor of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. He's also the associate conductor of the Charleston Symphony. And once again, thanks so much, uh, Kellen. Thank you. All right. For Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart.